Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And thank you for tuning into this episode of What the Politics. Today, our guest is a writer and he wrote a book called Author in Chief. And that's basically what this podcast episode is going to be about. It's going to be about presidents, what makes them great writers, what makes them great speakers. And I want to highlight um, a quote from his book. And it goes, a good citizen is a good reader. The reverse is true with the most bookish Americans being 31% more likely to vote than their peers. In other words, a good reader is also a good citizen. So we're going to kind of talk into that topic, talk about what inspired American presidents and how us as citizens can help keep this democracy going by reading. All right, I'm going to go ahead and let our guest introduce himself. Sure. Uh, my name is Craig Fairman. I'm a writer and a historian. I live in Bloomington, Indiana with my wife and my two little kids. And so we also have a personality question that we ask all of our guests. And our personality question for you is what president surprised you the most when you were writing Which on pre- Sure. Uh, the president that definitely surprised me the most was Calvin Coolidge, because I, I'll be honest with you, I had not thought a lot about Calvin Coolidge before I started working on this book. I, I'm sure that's probably true of most Americans. <laughs> like the only thing I knew about him was that he was kind of famously terse, and there are all these jokes about how he wouldn't give long answers, and he was very clever but very quiet. And so that was the, really the only thing I knew about him. And then when I started digging in, I realized, well, he was actually a great writer. The New York Times, when he was in the White House, said he was the most literary president since Lincoln. So that was kind of like, that was the take on Coolidge in his own time period. And he wrote a book that helped him become president that I, that I talk about in my book that's really good. But he also wrote an autobiography after he left the White House. And we're used to these kinds of books today. You know, Barack Obama's memoir came out last year, the first volume. And we're used to them being, you know, everywhere, ubiquitous, big bestsellers. But that was true even in 1929 when Coolidge's book came out. And it was, I mean, it was just the book of the season. You know, it started out as a magazine issue. The magazine sold out in one day. The magazine just started sending out free copies to anybody who wrote and asked for one because people wanted so much to know about Coolidge's inside story in the White House. And and I think the reason readers loved it, and I know the reason that it it meant so much to me, was that he was very personal. He talked about being in the White House, being the most powerful person in the world, but watching his teenage son die. And his son developed an infection, antibiotics weren't around at this point, and so Coolidge just kind of had to sit there while his son passed away. And he wrote so movingly about, you know, this is what it's like to be president, but this is also what it's like to be a father. And, uh, you know, I didn't expect Silent Cal to write some of the most heartbreaking passages in presidential literature, but he absolutely did. And it was so fun to share his stories in my book. Mm, Wow. So with the book that you wrote, um, how long did it take you to do all that research, put it together? And why did you want to write this book? What fascinated you about presidents? Sure. Well, it took me about 10 years to do it. And a lot of that time was research, like just as the Coolidge example, you know, His personal papers are in this little town where he lived in Massachusetts, but his publisher's paper were at Harvard University, and then there were other papers that were important in New York City. And so just for one president, you know, I had to go three different places to kind of look at these documents behind the scenes and then read a bunch of newspaper coverage from from the time period to sort of understand everything about him, plus read other books by other scholars and that kind of thing. 
Um, but the reason that I got got into it and the reason that I was curious about it was just it started in about 2008 when, you know, it was a really exciting presidential year and Barack Obama was obviously the, the biggest figure in that. But his books were everywhere and John McCain's books were everywhere. And I just got curious and thought, well, has this happened before? Has there been another time where everybody is talking about books and books are sort of the beating heart of America's political conversation? And, and I'm honestly somebody who loves books as much as I love presidents and history. And so I just kind of wanted to dig into it from that perspective. And then once I started digging, I realized, first of all, nobody had ever written a book about this, which that's exciting to be able to tell something new. And, there, and there's so many new stories in my book, new details that even if you've read a bunch of biographies of Lincoln, you're going to learn new things about Abraham Lincoln, I promise you. But the other thing was just that the new stuff I was founding, finding felt so human kind of like the Coolidge example I mentioned, that there's something about writing. And I think we know this even from our own lives. If you have to sit down and write a text message to somebody, you have to sort of pause and think, well, well, what am I trying to say? What do I care about? What am I scared about? And that's true for politicians too. Even if they worked with ghostwriters or did the writing themselves, the act of writing sort of forces them to slow down and be really human. And so when I was able to write about that and sort of go behind the scenes for their books and why they cared about the books and, and what the books accomplished, I felt like I was really able to show a human side to presidents that sometimes to us just kind of feel like statues at this point, but, but they were still human beings too. Mm -hmm. So kind of talking about great presidents and in your book, you outlined, I believe 13 presidents with an epilogue with George Bush and we won't go through all of them, but does, do great presidents, are they also great writers? Is that an element of a great president? It's, it's such a good question. And, and, I thought about it, you know, for a lot of those 10 years. And the thing that kind of gave me the aha moment was actually this old lecture by Woodrow Wilson. It's not really one of his best known lectures or, or speeches. You know, he had so many important speeches about World War One and other issues. But this is much older when he was still just a professor. And he was a professor, but he was also somebody who cared about politics. You know, he had always wanted to go into politics and kind of viewed it as the road not taken until late in his life, he became governor and then a very influential president. Um, but early on, when he was just a professor, he kind of had this speech where he was considering the difference between men who write and men who act. Those are kinds of his phrases. And, and he really defined it, I thought, in a fascinating way, because he talked about, you know, people, writers like to complicate everything. They like to take a problem and say, what's the new thing I can say here? What's the thing that hasn't been said? What are the issues everybody isn't considering? If it's this, is it also this? And that's sort of the opposite of what a good politician does, because a politician needs to simplify. A politician needs to take a big complicated issue and turn it into something that can actually get accomplished or that can get people to vote on it. I think the phrase Wilson used was, you know, a politician seeks the thoughts that have already been thought. Which, which I thought was a really nice way to put it. Mm -hmm. And so it, for Wilson, those two ideas were kind of intention. You know, you, you could be a great writer or you could be a great politician, but there's sort of two different ways of seeing the world. And I think I agree with that. I think, you know, we have, we've definitely had presidents with incredible literary talents. Obama is an example. Wilson is an example. Um, Coolidge is an example. Lincoln is an example. But I do think that sometimes they would have to use sort of operate with two approaches. They would have their literary skills where they would, you know, come up with those phrases that kind of crystallize what everyone was thinking or, or explain why they had to make a hard choice. But at the same time, they also had to have that sort of ruthless political skill where they could kind of simplify and, and figure out exactly what to do or who to blame or who to attack. Because politics is, is, is a mass art, and which means it has to kind of be a simple art, right? And so it, it's hard to answer that. I, I think being a great writer can help you be 
become president. But I also think to be a great president, sometimes you have to set aside your writerly side. And, and in the Obama chapter especially, I kind of mentioned that Wilson speech and sort of some of the frustrations that, that Obama's critics had with him from the left. Um, you know, I, I think you can understand those a little bit through, well, was he being a little too literary? Was he trying to see, you know, Obama would talk about there's no red states or blue states. There's two sides to every problem. And that's a really literary approach. That's how writers write. They talk about empathy and, and not trafficking in stereotypes. But, you know, you could say that that approach kind of made it harder for Obama to get political change done. And, and I'm not saying I'm not coming down on either side of that question because I'm a writer. Right. I look, I look for the complicated answer. But uh, but but it's you know, it's something worth considering. And it's one of those themes that, that I thought was really fun in the material I was working through. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of the great presidents seem to have this ability to give uh, a vision, some sort of guidance and hope uh for obama he had that hope like that was a lot of what was in his kind of like presidential or election um uh his political not coverage what is it when people are going out in their uh uh, campaigns excuse Uh me i had a break for it for a second but it seems like a lot of um, presidents are able to have this ability to give great vision and great um ideas like give strength to these great ideas not necessarily have them um laid out in a very like particular manner but they just can have like one phrase hope you know and then we can talk about trump too where he's like make america great again it's just like this this idea would you find that that's um like having that ability to be great speakers is that coming from great writing as well yeah it absolutely is and it's it's always it sometimes it can kind of take a meandering path the, the obama example is a great one that you know offering that hope it was the perfect time for that message and it's definitely why people responded to it but you know, he he had to figure that out through writing his book you know he becomes a national political figure in 2004 when he has his big convention speech and and you know his book was actually out of print at that point and so copies on ebay were going for hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. and they rushed it back in print and it became a huge bestseller and, and that sort of was a was an important part of, of him becoming barack obama the literary supernova and, and political supernova but but what's interesting is that that message of hope it's not like you know he was sitting around with some with some advertising executives and message consultants and they kind of workshopped it it came out of his life story and it came out of him figuring out how to tell his life story mm-hmm. because more than a decade before he was a nobody he was had a book deal was trying to write a book couldn't figure out how to write it lost his book deal his agent managed to get him a second smaller book deal and as an aside one of those delightful uh, ironies in history the same editor who signed obama was the editor who got trump to write art of the deal so the same person <laughs> brought both those books into the world and and those two books really made both of those men uh you know celebrities and, and big political figures but when obama was just sitting by himself with a yellow notepad trying to figure out you know I have this complicated life story. I'm white, but I'm also black. I have family on both sides. They don't always get along. I'm Amer- American, but I also identify with people who aren't from America. Once he was able to figure out how those different parts of his life fit together and how the themes that kind of tied them together were working hard and, and having hope and being optimistic and listening to other people, he, he figured out how to tell the story of his life, and then that story is what led to that slogan. You know, it, it, he had to do this hard private literary work 
to understand himself. And, and what can make a political candidate really, really um, appealing is when they have you know a good slogan, good writing, but also their life story and, and kind of their demeanor ties into it. I think that's true of Trump. You know, he had the nostalgia of make America great again, but he also as a person was had a very nostalgic appeal to his supporters. That's true of Obama. That's true of Coolidge. You know, Coolidge was the same kind of thing in that he was caught between an era of like the 19th century and then the 1920s and flappers and radio and all this change. And Coolidge was able to like use the radio technology, but also still sort of appear to be a Vermont farmer. So you kind of got the best of all worlds. And Coolidge had the writing skill, but he also had the right timing and the right message. And so people like Obama, Trump, Coolidge, they sort of bring it all together in this magical moment. And writing is the way to kind of discover and, and amplify that, that kind of special, uh, special sauce. Definitely. So would you say, you know, going along with that, that being a great speaker or a great writer is kind of more important when it comes to being a president? You know, I think we've talked a lot about Obama and and Trump, but I think they're just great examples. You know, Obama was known for being such an eloquent speaker, um, uh, addressing people. He was really great at giving speeches. And, And Trump, on the other hand, you know, not as eloquent in his speeches, but people rallied with him and and really listened to what he had to say so what is kind of the balance of being a great speaker and a great writer and being able to rally people sure it's a great question and and i think what's fascinating is that it's almost i would say you need to be a great communicator whatever the medium is you know Mm -hmm. my book actually starts with jefferson and adams and and this history of presidents and their books is as old as america itself But, you know, when Jefferson was doing the State of the Union, it wasn't a it obviously wasn't on TV, but it wasn't even a speech that you delivered in person. It was a speech delivered in writing. And so Jefferson was able to use his really lawyerly mind and and write these complicated paragraphs that people would read that would work really well in that in that medium. Same thing's true with Obama. He could give these speeches on TV that would really persuade people and, and, and excite people. You know, it, it, it was the reason so many people turned out to vote for him is because people saw his speeches and people responded to, to his message and, and to him as a person. I think we have to give Trump credit for being so good at Twitter. And, you know, it's, it's silly to think of Twitter versus a really literary book like the one Obama wrote, maybe. But, I mean, Twitter's hard. I'm not any good at Twitter, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> uh, but Trump was, was able to use it in a way that got people who liked him excited and that kind of amplified his message. And you can also see that in different periods, different kinds of political communication work. Under Obama and especially under Trump, our our politics became so partisan and so divided that the the job of the president was less to use the bully pulpit to persuade everybody. You know, we think of like Teddy Roosevelt saying, this is what I want to do. I'm going to get America on my side. I honestly don't think that a president can do that anymore because at least 40, 42 percent of America will never be on that president's side no matter what they say. So when a president talks about a big issue at this point, you're you're going to get your side more excited for it, but you're going to get the other side more excited against it. So sometimes it's better for a president to just kind of keep quiet because once once Trump's name is attached to an idea, well, you know half the country is going to hate it and half the country is going to love it. And so – Trump, I think, worked very well in that ecosystem because he wasn't really worried about the other half of the country. He was worried about keeping his half excited and his half engaged. And the the medium that he used for that was, I think, Twitter and those big rallies. And, you know, it, it's not classic writing, but it was a very effective political strategy um, up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And something kind of going into what inspired 
some of these great presidents and their great writings. So we talked about experience with Obama, but it's not only just experience that necessarily helps um, a president become a great writer. It's also kind of what they've read. Is that correct? Would you find that with your own research? I, I totally agree with you. Um, one of my favorite moments in the, mo- in, the in my book is, is Ulysses S. Grant. Um, and he obviously wrote his presidential memoirs, which a lot of people say is, is the best book ever written by a president. It was a huge bestseller. I mean, it, it, it kind of, you know, it sold even more than a book like Obama's could sell today. People who were former Civil War veterans would go door to door across the country. And, you know, the country at that point is still mostly farms and small towns. And they would say, you know, I know you've been reading about Ulysses S. Grant's book every day in the newspaper. I, I, I'm here to sell you a copy of it. And so it was just such a big seller. And it was a big moment because Grant was dying as he was writing it. And it, it's still a wonderful book today. Um, people know that story, I think. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a powerful story to read and, and to, to learn about. But what really struck me is that Grant was a great reader. And I think that's why he was a great writer. When he was a cadet at West Point, he actually got demerits because he was spending too much time in the library. And he loved to read novels. He loved to read fiction. And, and, and that was kind of a new thing at this time because in the, you know, in the 19th century, somebody like James Madison would say, you know, I read novels when I was a young man, but then I realized that there, there were better things to do once I got older <laughs> because <laughs> fiction writing still had this kind of sense of being you know, a distraction, something for, for, for children, something frivolous which is funny today because today if we want to do something virtuous, we're going to sit down with a good novel, right? And, and I mean, I, I love to read novels too, So, but it, it's just an example of how things change. But Grant loved to read fiction. He was kind of the first president who was fully obsessed with reading novels. And there are letters that he writes to his wife when he is a, a young soldier stationed far away from her, and they would read the same novel at the same time. And of course, they were reading different copies of the book. But, you know, Grant had borrowed the book from someone else, and he would see passages underlined, and he wrote to his wife, you know, I would get to this passage and see it underlined, and I know you weren't the one reading it and underlining this copy, but it still made me feel close to you, and I still found myself thinking, would she have liked this passage? Did this character mean something to her? And that's another example of how using this kind of um, book's lens to look at presidents can give us these really human moments. And I, I do think that this shaped Grant as a writer, too, because the best part in the book he ultimately wrote are the parts about other people. It's when he describes meeting Abraham Lincoln or when he describes meeting Robert E. Lee. Those are the passages that really stand out. And, you know, describing other people, that's what a novelist does, right? That's, that's creating characters. And so I think the fact that Grant read so many novels as a young man and loved novels so much, that kind of prepared him to write a great book after his presidency. Were there any books that uh, these presidents read that seemed to have a common theme, or were there any common books that they all kind of relied on? Sure. Yeah, there were definitely books that were kind of American bestsellers. And, and, and one thing I try to do in my book is sort of bring out kind of what was America reading at the time. You know, mm-hmm. I like details. I like the stories of regular people. So I even try to get into like, you know, well, how much did a book cost? When Thomas Jefferson's president and you're, let's say you're a regular person who's working as a carpenter, it would take you two days to earn up enough money to buy a book because books were kind of this rare luxury good at that time. And so, you know, you could buy a pair of shoes and a pound of sugar and a bunch of other stuff, or you could buy one book. That was the choice people had to make. Um, But despite that, there were books that were kind of bestsellers. And, you know, there was a book on George Washington, the book where kind of the myth of him and the cherry tree started that was read by president after president. And Abraham Lincoln famously read that book. But if there was a common theme, it was that presidents like to read about other presidents and, and they like to read about American history. I mean, you can honestly say that's true of all Americans. In, in my book, I call us a nation of nonfiction because I think 
from the very beginning, Americans have always wanted to read about their political leaders and try to understand you know, what motivates political leaders, what makes a good leader, what are the most important ideas. That's just a very practical way to read. And I think we as Americans are a very practical people. Um, and presidents read that way too. But but one interesting theme I did notice is that, you know, when you read history, you can kind of you can kind of tell a history story two ways. You can say history was created by these big forces like technology or the economy or, or racism or, you know, all these big forces that shape history. Or you can say history was created by individual people. You know, Abraham Lincoln changed the Civil War or the Civil War was a battle about these bigger issues. And and both both stories are true. It's just kind of a matter of emphasis. But what's fascinating is that presidents almost always emphasize the individual. If you go back and look about Harry Truman, for instance, who is somebody who loved history from the beginning, who, had a, who still would talk about how great his high school history teacher was, Harry Truman believed that great people made history. And, and most presidents agreed with him. And I think that just gets back to that mindset we talked about. If you're going to be a politician, you kind of have to see the world in simple terms to get stuff done. And so politicians see history in, in simple terms, too. If you run for president, it's because you believe you can change the world. And so if you're reading history, you're looking for stories where other presidents have changed the world. And I think that's the way most presidents kind of view the past. This might sound kind of random, but do presidents read scripture? Do they kind of use that in their writings or do they use that to rally people as well? It's not random at all. I mean, for most of American history, I talked about having a very, you know, how we had a very practical style of reading. The books that were at the center of that were the Bible and other religious texts. And so... If you read Abraham Lincoln, any letter, any speech, you will feel the King James Bible kind of breathing behind the scenes. Um, and that's true of so many presidents, um, you know, up to somebody like Woodrow Wilson, who is uh, kind of a, a divisive figure today. You, you will not find a more religious president um, than, than Woodrow Wilson, even though that might not line up with how a lot of Americans think about him today. So for a lot of presidents, they really relied on scripture, both as personal inspiration, but also as literary inspiration. Because, you know, especially if you come from a, a working class background, somebody like Truman, somebody like Reagan, there weren't a lot of books in the house, even in the 20th century, in the early parts of the 20th century, because books were expensive. But the book that you could count on being there was the Bible. And so it was, it was a huge influence on them. And I said I talked a little bit about kind of the books Americans were reading and the books that were bestsellers. I actually tell the story in the Abraham Lincoln chapter about this group called the American Bible Society. And they had this idea that they wanted a Bible to be in every American household. And in the, in the 1820s, 1830s, that was a radical idea because there, was, you know, there wasn't anything that was universal across all America because it was a big country and it was kind of before mass culture. But they printed these books using new printing technology technologies like steam-powered printing presses, and then they just gave them to people who would get on horseback and ride around. And even in the county where Lincoln lived, somebody would, you know, it would be a good day if you could get on your horse and take 10 Bibles and give them to 10 families mm. because people were so spread out and because books were heavy and you could only fit so many on a horse and, and all those things that we don't really think of today because we can go to Amazon or a local bookstore and just get what we want instantly. But that was harder to do back then, and, and that's one reason I think that the Bible was so essential to people because it was a book you could count on everyone having and, and everyone having read. Right. So you talked about um, the book Ulysses S. Grant um, put out and how people were, you know, so excited to kind of get their hands on that. Did 
people before that, you know, in, in president's time, like Jefferson, uh, Adams, Washington, did people have that same sort of sentiment where they wanted to learn about the personal lives of these leaders of these presidents? You know, obviously we have like Abigail Adams, the letters between her and John Adams, and those are super popular now, but did people have that same sentiment then to want to know the personal life of, of these presidents? Yeah, it, it's a great question, and you're, you're absolutely right. One of the first things I realized as I was working on this book was, holy cow, we, you know, we're obsessed with the founders today, but we've always been obsessed with the founders mm-hmm. from the very beginning. This is something that Americans wanted to know about. And, and we wanted to know about it for a lot of reasons. We wanted to know about it because it's gossipy and because Abigail writes great letters. But we also wanted to know about it because we wanted to understand what does it mean to be an American? What, what are the most important values? What are the best way to, to get to those values? And so these books were huge bestsellers from the very beginning. Um, one thing I do, I talked, for example, about Thomas Jefferson's book, Notes on the State of Virginia, which came out before he ran for president. And and that book was at the center of his political campaign, just the way that Obama's Dreams from My Father or Trump's Art of the Deal were at the center of their political campaigns. And you can actually adjust the sales figures because America was a much smaller country back then. But if you adjust the sales figures, um, Jefferson's book sold the equivalent of a half a million copies which is a big bestseller today, but especially back then, when you think about how expensive books were and how hard it was to get a book from point A to point B, it was just, it was an unbelievable seller. And so these books have always been huge, uh, huge parts of American culture. And what's really cool is that you'll often find presidents reading other presidents. Mm-hmm. So quick story about that. After Thomas Jefferson died, his family was in a lot of debt in part because books were expensive and he had bought way too many books. And so they, you know, they, they sold off his slaves. They did other things they could do to try to pay the debts. And one thing they did is they decided to publish his autobiography that he had written. And yes, even presidents back that early wrote autobiographies. They just didn't publish them until after they were dead. So a publisher brought out this big four volume set of Jefferson's autobiography, but also his letters. And it was one of the biggest literary events in American history to that point. And John Quincy Adams ended up reading it. And because John Quincy Adams wrote these amazing diaries, I can kind of reconstruct for people what was it like for John Quincy Adams. You know, he talked about it's a cold winter night. I'm sitting in front of my fireplace. I'm reading Jefferson's book. Jefferson's a guy I admired, but I also had some problems with. I was there for some of the stuff he writes about. And so John Quincy Adams just kind of explains what it was like to write it. And he was like, you know, when Jefferson tells the story of his life, Jefferson's always the hero. But I guess that's true of, of most people who write these kinds of books. And, and John Quincy Adams really liked it, although he did say, I think Benjamin Franklin's autobiography was a, a little bit better. So there are so many stories of Grant reading Lincoln's book or Ronald Reagan reading Calvin Coolidge's book. And so anytime I could find a president reading another president, it just helped me feel, feel like I had this this kind of – American story from the beginning up to today to tell and, and to bring readers along with. So you already, you know, you told us what president surprised you the most in your research, but I would love to know, you know, do you have a favorite president um, and why? Um, I would say that Lincoln is my definitely my favorite president and the why is probably just hometown bias because I'm from <laughs> Indiana and Lincoln uh, spent his, I think, most formative years in Indiana, but also if you're somebody who, who likes good writing, you can't go wrong with Lincoln. And, you know, it, it's a really long story that, that I mostly tell in the book, but, but I think the best chapter in the book is the Lincoln chapter, mm. because we know about Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address and all his big speeches. But most people do not know that Lincoln actually wrote a book and that this book was a huge bestseller. It's another book that if you adjust for population, 
it sold the equivalent of half a million copies in 1860 when he was running for president. And it's not just that that book mattered, it's that the book mattered to Lincoln. And so I really tell the behind the scenes stories of all the work he did to put the book together, to find the right printer. He would argue with the printers, no, I don't want you to do the book that way, I want you to do the book this way. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a story that shows you how much Lincoln was ambitious in terms of his politics, but it's also a story that shows you how much Lincoln cared about books. Because books were really what opened the world to him. You know, he lived in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. And reading books about George Washington or reading books about American history were what gave him an understanding that there was a bigger world and bigger ideas that, that he could explore. And so to be able to, to tell that story of Lincoln as a reader and then as a writer and how important the book was to him and to his political career – I just I felt so lucky to to be able to tell that story in such depth, and and it made me love Lincoln even more. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of going along with that same theme, there was another president who basically uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. With uh, I believe it was John F. Kennedy. Um, That's right. Can you can you uh, kind of explain how that happened? Sure. Well, this is this is one of those ones where you know the archival research we talked about earlier really helped me out because I was able to find new documents at the Kennedy Library that nobody had seen before, and that that happened with a lot of presidents, Andrew Jackson, Ronald Reagan, just just something about having this kind of focus of presidents and their books helps me go to kind of out of the way places and find new things and and new details, and so everybody knows that that Kennedy wrote Profiles in Courage. It's a good book. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad it exists. And it reached lots of readers because Kennedy's name was attached to it. You know, he was a, a senator and a, and a glamorous figure, and, and it helped a good book get read widely. And I don't think anybody can be mad about that. Where it gets a little trickier, though, is that Kennedy clearly did not write the book. And, and I go through a lot of details why we know that in my book. Um, but he had somebody else write it. But then Kennedy tried to get the Pulitzer Prize. And, and people who have talked about this before have said, well, maybe Kennedy's dad tried to get it for him. You know, the family was always trying to prop up their sons. But I found documents that showed that it was Kennedy himself who was obsessed with the Pulitzer Prize. He had a conversation with a historian a few years before he wrote the book where he actually said, I'd rather win a Pulitzer than be president. And so the nice thing for Kennedy is that he got both dreams. Um, But even though, you know, my book is actually pretty pro ghostwriting. I think, you know, George Washington used ghostwriters. Lots of presidents have used ghostwriters. If you can find a professional who helps you put your ideas in, in the best possible wording and then you attach fame to those ideas, you as the political celebrity, that's, that, that makes sense. That's a good idea. But Kennedy did something that I think ethically is a little more dubious. He, you know, he cared more about how people perceived the book than he cared about how good the book would be. And he was fine to receive a prize that most of us think goes to books that, you know, uh, are written by one person and are the, the, the result of careful labor when Kennedy barely did anything at all. He was very involved in promoting the book. I found letters where Kennedy would say, you know, I think my author photo on the back needs to be a little bit bigger. But I did not <laughs> find letters where Kennedy was saying, hey, that comma on page 32 really needs to come out of there. And so it's, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, that, that's something that we should evaluate if we're going to decide whether John F. Kennedy was a good president. That's the stuff that really matters. Mm-hmm. But if you want to see the personal side of Kennedy, if you want to see what kind of person he was, I think this story and this chapter in my book is actually a really revealing one because you can see what his priorities were and what he was willing to do to get this literary fame, um, whether he deserved it or not. And it was, it was, a, it was a really interesting chapter to write, and I, I know it changed how I view Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And you kind of answered my last question within that answer, but basically it was asking, what is your opinion on presidents using speech writers, ghost writers? How do you think that can influence how they're perceived by the public? And uh, basically you already said you're pro speech writers and, and ghost writers, yeah. but, but uh, can you explain a little bit further why that is? Sure. Well, like I said, the, the history of American ghostwriting is the history of American political communication. They, they've always used it. Um, George Washington, when he worked on his farewell address, which is another one of those documents that every president has read and, and a lot of Americans have read, it's kind of like American scripture itself. Washington didn't write every word of that. He worked with James Madison first and then Alexander Hamilton. So I think the, the, the lesson in there is not that ghostwriting is bad. It's that get yourself really good ghostwriters, you know, get yourself an Alexander Hamilton. But also to give Washington credit, he was very involved in the process. He said, these are the main ideas I want to get across. This is the style that I want. And he also reviewed what Hamilton wrote and made some changes. And so for me, saying ghostwriting is bad, it's just not a helpful way to look at things. I think it's much more useful to say, is this good ghostwriting or bad ghostwriting? And one of the examples I give in my book is from Ronald Reagan's life. Um, before Ronald Reagan even ran for governor in California, he wrote this first book called Where's the Rest of Me? And it's not in print anymore, but I, but I think it's a really fascinating book and, and probably the best way to understand Reagan and how he saw the world. And yes, Reagan worked with a ghostwriter, but he worked really hard on it. You know, they met every day. Um, the ghostwriter would send Reagan questions, and, and these are some of the letters I found that no one had seen before. And Reagan would write back these really detailed letters saying, well, here's what you have to understand about this and this. And Reagan would run out of room on the page and have to go over in the margin of his letter and, and add more thoughts because he cared so much about this book. And I think that's why it's a good book. It's not that it had a ghostwriter or not a ghostwriter, but it's that Reagan and the ghostwriter both cared. Then after Reagan finished his presidency, he got a huge multi-million dollar advance to write his presidential memoirs. Again, he worked with a ghostwriter, and the ghostwriter is a very talented person. I interviewed him while I was working on this book. But frankly, Reagan just didn't care about the book. I mean, I talked to a lot of people around him who basically said he was doing this for the money and because he felt like he had to. And so that second book is not a good book at all. It just it doesn't really reveal anything about his presidency or about him as a person. And I think the difference there is just good ghostwriting and bad ghostwriting. Whether it's a president writing a book themselves or, or reading a book or writing a book with someone else, what you need is you need for that president to care and to view words and books as, as an important way to get across a message and to really have a message that they're passionate about. And so as long as they have those things, um, something good can come out of it. But sometimes you'll see the same president like a Reagan. They can have that happen once, and that first book is wonderful, even if people don't really know much about it today. But that second book that was the big bestseller that he got all the money for isn't that good. It's not because it had a ghostwriter. It's just because Reagan didn't really have anything to say. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a very meta conversation talking about writing. <laughs> That's and, true. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And I hope you have an absolutely wonderful day. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I hope you guys do too. And thanks again for your interest. This is, this is the highlight of my day to talk about this stuff. Oh, so thank, awesome. you. thank you. Thanks so much. Have <laughs> yeah. a great rest of your yep. Tuesday. Okay. You too. See you guys later. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. We release new episodes every Tuesday. You can find those at WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.